welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This is Justin Carter. I'm a doctoral student in psychology and the editor of the research news section at the Madden America website. We provide daily reports of the latest research and debates in psychology and psychiatry and conduct interviews with leading figures in the field. Today, I am fortunate to be doing such an interview with Kirk Schneider. Kirk Schneider is currently running for president of the American Psychological Association, or the APA. He is a licensed psychologist and an adjunct faculty at Saybrook University and Teachers College, Columbia. He is well known as the leading spokesperson for integrative, existential, and humanistic approaches to psychology, which emphasize the therapeutic relationship and the importance of confronting the deep paradoxes of being human and the conflicts that arise from them in psychotherapy. He's authored or co-authored 12 books, including The Wiley World Handbook of Existential Therapy, The Spirituality of Awe, Challenges to the Robotic Revolution, The Polarized Mind, Why It's Killing Us and What We Can Do About It, and most recently, The Depolarizing of America, a guidebook for social healing. Many trainees in counseling and clinical psychology will recognize Schneider from the APA psychotherapy training videos featuring his therapy work. Schneider is campaigning to serve as president of APA to, quote, address the existential crises that are now flaring all about us. He puts it this way, quote, we are in crisis racially, politically, and environmentally. We are in crisis with gender and sexual injustices. We are in crisis with mental and physical health. In short, America is poised on the precipice. And if our profession fails to grasp this problem, we are in fact in danger of inflaming it. In this interview, Schneider discusses his path into psychology, including his own struggles and growth, his approach to psychotherapy, his scholarship on the psychology of awe and the polarized mind. And then we turn our attention to his vision for psychology in the future, a whole person approach to healthcare, a quote, psychologist general of the United States, and the development of dialogue groups that can help address the polarization and division we see in our political discourse. Welcome to the Madden America podcast, Kirk. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much, Justin. I appreciate being here. To start, I wonder if we can go to the beginning. James Baldwin once said, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us, and we are our history. I imagine this is as true for personal history as it is for our collective social and political histories. You've written before about the loss of your brother early in life and how that affected you and even altered your life trajectory. How did these early experiences bring you into the world of psychology? It's a great question, and uh, I guess I think of my, uh, my history almost like a patchwork quilt that has many weaves to it. Uh, certainly the loss of my brother when I was about two and a half years old, and he was seven, was a huge blow, uh, a shattering uh, to me and uh, my family, uh, my parents in particular. It, it, it was like, like a rip in the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives and our, our routines, uh, our familiarity with, uh, with ourselves and, and, and the world. I, I was in quite bad shape as, as a young kid because of that. I, I have very unique parents, 
and uh, that probably should be noted. Uh, actually, my my mother just passed away. She was ninety years old, and uh, she and I've grown to really appreciate uh, what a what an inspiration uh, she was is. Um, personally and uh, and also professionally she was a, a a leader a pioneer really uh for women she had a great deal of uh pluck and she uh fought her way into becoming a leading spokesperson for radio and television in uh, in a in Cleveland in the late 50s and early 60s and uh she she always had a, a very expansive spirit. She believed if if you can do something, do it. You know, go for it. And she she definitely uh, brought that that fire uh, to me and and those she touched. Uh, but she went through a, a very profound uh, struggle and 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 torment uh, after my brother died, and. Uh, as a result, uh, she she went into psychoanalysis. She had the wherewithal uh, to to do that, which was quite, uh, I would say, unusual for that time. And again, we're talking sixty some years ago. She actually referred me to a, a child analyst, who was extremely important as I look back uh, in uh, helping me to just find a footing in life. Because this was somebody outside my family system, who was very seasoned. I do. Rem- I don't remember a word that was exchanged, but I do remember his presence. I think he was a middle-aged guy. I was very young, of course. I probably five at the time, and uh, he just brought a very steady, uh, calming, uh, seasoned presence, like a, a, a sense that he had really been there. In, in profound ways in his own life. That, that was, you know, the kind of intuitions I had, even as a little kid. And that was extremely important because uh, um, my mother and, and dad were, were having quite a challenge for a period of time. My, my father was also a very unusual guy. He, uh, he was a school teacher and uh, became a principal. His main field was uh, science and education, and he eventually became a professor of education. And uh, he did his dissertation on creativity in kids. <laughs> and so I spent uh, quite a bit of time with my dad, uh, making up stories, uh, talking into a tape recorder that he had. When I was as young as four years old, I'd be talking about the government and pollution <laughs> And uh, and also stories that I, I saw movies or books that I read. So he was very encouraging of that. Um, they were both very supportive of me uh, dealing with uh, my emotional life to, to the degree possible. Uh, as I said, I, I I was I was in some trouble for a period of time. I I would uh, go on. Uh, Long periods of, of crying and uh, of, uh, of screaming and raging, and uh, had a lot of fears, night terrors, 
and I, I think they, they did all they could, you know, to really help. And I'm so grateful for that. My dad, unfortunately, died very young. He was 53, and he died of a massive heart attack. I grew up in a, a very unique circumstance and neighborhood. We were the only Jewish family in a basically Italian-German Catholic neighborhood. And uh, at that time, in the early 60s, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was still uh, pretty challenging for uh, Jews in, in that kind of circumstance. Uh, I remember uh, one time where uh, we woke up to see a, a big black Nazi sign painted on our ping pong table, which was hanging in our garage. There, there, there was a neighborhood bully you know, who would call me names and uh, dirty Jew, whatever. Uh, beat me up a few times, uh, you know. I, I actually, I have no regrets at all about having grown up in that environment. I, I think it's been very important as, as a, a thread in my life of uh, discovering, uh, you know, the... The, the beauty, the, the charm, the knowledge of others. I'm interested in, uh, in hearing about this uh, because a lot of your, your work, especially recently, focuses on the impacts of racism and marginalization yeah, and yeah. even oppression. And yeah. often being a white man in this country, it can be easy to kind of remain in a state yeah. of obliviousness or even denial right. concerning these issues. And it sounds like you had the experience of being the oppressed, but then also the oppressor at times, um, That's, both of those identities at an early age. Can you talk a little bit about how your eyes were open to that? Very much so, Justin. Uh, that, uh, unfortunately, that, that was a part of my, my experience uh, growing up, too. I, I, like many kids, you know, wanted to identify with the crowd. With my peers, and uh, there there were times uh, like this one time that particularly stands out for me, where uh, a gang of kids, a group of kids in the neighborhood in the street, started chasing after a kid of color, uh, and he was also, um, uh, I, I think, uh, limited uh, uh, mentally and emotionally. And uh, so, which just added to the, the prejudices of kids. I mean, we were, you know, seven years old, maybe. Um, and I followed him. And it obviously stood out because that wasn't typical of me. I, I, I just got caught up. This incident I remember because my father saw it from the house. He abruptly ran up to me took me by the shoulder, collar, took me back to the front of the house and spanked me. And it was maybe one of two times that he spanked me on the butt, you know. Uh, I mean, I, so I remembered it, but, but he didn't, it, just, it wasn't just corporal punishment. Uh, he sat me down and he talked to me and the first things that he conveyed were uh, the seriousness. Do you understand the seriousness of what you're doing, Kirk? 
I mean, what if those guys were chasing you and you were this fellow, Joe, you know, running away and terrified and they were chasing you because of your skin color? How would you feel? What, what comes up in your mind about that? And I don't remember the details of the conversation, but I know we had a, had a long talk about it, and it impressed me profoundly. And that was a part of a kind of a general upbringing that uh, was uh, con conscious, I would say, or concerned about social issues, about social justice issues. So there you are as a young person, and you've lost your older brother at a very young age. Um, yeah. And it's clear that, you know, life isn't guaranteed for anyone forever. Right. That's right. And you're trying to make sense of your role and position in your community and I guess in the world. And it sounds like your parents set an example for you. Um, they also connected you to the world of psychology and then yes. also the world of, you know, literature and film um, yes. that helped you find your place. But uh, that isn't, not every child is as fortunate to have those kind of outlets. And uh, I'm wondering, yeah, what, how it might be different for, you know, a child going through some of those same experiences that you had today. Um, I'm sure radically different. I mean, my parents were first generation from uh, Ukraine, East Europe, but uh, somehow they found that, you know, these sort of psychologically psychosocially enriching paths for themselves. And uh, yeah, I, I'd say uh, I, I've been extremely blessed in having that. I mean, I would say there, there, there are a few, you know, wealthy families that have that kind of background generally and not be raising questions with their kids. I mean, I, I see this as a huge problem in our educational system generally. I think the gutting of the arts and humanities has been a, a, an extraordinary mistake in our system. And I think we're paying for it dearly all across the board in the country uh, in terms of sensitivity to each other and, and ourselves. But that's a whole other issue. That is one reason why I very strongly uh, want to do what I can to uh, support people in all kinds of situations in our country who experience a great deal of uh, um, emotional impoverishment as well as uh, economic. It's obviously particularly difficult to, to be a recipient of uh, emotional deepening and contact uh, when one is, is just striving to get bread on the table, you know, or, or work, uh, to scrape a living together. Uh, so this is one reason why I, I feel so strongly about uh, a psychologist general, yeah. and we will talk about later, uh, being somebody who, who helps to represent uh, psychology in, in a larger way, yeah. with a larger influence, and in particular on helping people gain access to quality mental health care. And I'm talking about you know, longer-term intensive, emotionally corrective relationships that people will have access to and that are so deprived of in so many settings in our country.
after having these early experiences, you found your way into the field of psychology and then into yes. a sort of humanistic existential sort of subfield in particular and right. studied with the famous existentialist <laughs> Rollo May. So I'm interested to hear a little bit, how did you find your way there and <laughs> what was that experience like? Well, again, that's a part of my very unique upbringing. Uh, my dad was immersed in articles and books by Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers in particular, Rollo May, all, you know, all humanistically oriented. I mean, I, I would play with some of these books in my playroom. They were part of the buildings that I would create, you know. So I came to them very organically uh, and again through conversations with my dad. But so it was a kind of a natural uh, uh, evolution in my growing up, uh, fascination with uh, the human condition. Clearly, a lot of that, to me, is clear, comes out of uh, this uh, very early tear uh, in my, uh, my life experience that uh, just took me into other worlds very young and, and exposed me to the, these radical terrors and, uh, and unknowns of living. And dying. Fortunately, again, I had the support that could could help me tap into those new worlds in a way that eventually, I mean, after a long time, uh, got me to a place of being able to be intrigued with them, at wonder about them, and not just uh, paralyzed. Uh, and I was paralyzed for a good part of those growing up years. It strikes me that having confronted some of those, like you said, terrors or even tears and mm -hmm. sort of the fabric of, of reality in some way. Yes. Um, it's, you know, it's not inevitable that you would seek out uh, a field of existential therapy yeah. where those questions are ones that you have to continue to read about and face yeah. on a daily basis. And what was that like to, to kind of have oh. to intellectually meet those, those tears over and over again? I like to say that, uh, you know, I was introduced to existentialism at two and a half. I mean, basically, that's the reality. What was it like? Uh, well, I, again, I lived in a scary, scary world. I was, I was afraid of dying. I was afraid of germs. I was quite hypochondriacal. Afraid of uh, sort of demonic uh, influences. You know, I, I had... Fears of my parents as well at times. I mean, a kid has, you know, all kinds of fantasies around a profound death like that. And almost no perspective and no layers of experience to kind of contextualize something like that. So, of course, your mind goes all over the place. Um, so these are a lot of the things that I, I needed to work through. Uh, I was alone, uh, which had its great sides in terms of being able to develop uh, more of an internal, an inner life, uh, create creative life, imaginative life, because uh, I did make up a lot of stories. And, and I love science fiction, as you know. <laughs> and I, I, I thought that some of the programs in those days were fantastic, at least for, for a kid like me. I related to a lot of those strange worlds, you know, that were shown on like Shows like One Step Beyond about the paranormal and uh, Outer Limits, the early Twilight Zone. 
I'm still very intrigued by those because because they open us up, to, you know, again to the the radical mystery of being, and and that's really the path that I see that I've been on, you know, for sixty four years, and uh, and and one can be both obviously uh, horrified by it and overwhelmed, which I experienced at significant points in my life but also just fascinated with it and seeing it as, you know, as awesome, as distinct from just horrifying and overwhelming. And uh, that's a great place to be if one can uh, find what I, what I would call a, a ground within groundlessness and deal with the paradoxes of that. So those shows actually helped in a lot of ways because I was getting other support to be able to deal with it. I was sure scared of them too. Uh, but uh, my trajectory was more and more, again, toward the arts and humanities. I loved English and literature. I loved drama, sociology classes as I got to high school. And then in college, I guess I, I blossomed <laughs> with psychology. I really blossomed in graduate school. I had the good fortune of going to some great places with... Uh, people who were disciples of Maslow and and some just direct forebears of humanistic psychology. Can you say a little bit about what humanistic psychology was at the time? I think it was sort of emerging and it was seen as sort of countercultural and it was changing psychology in significant ways. What was the sort of culture of humanistic psychology at that time? I think the, the most uh, substantive aspect of it was an attempt to try to understand the whole human being to the degree that's possible. Our whole bodied experience of life. And, and the feeling was among a, a number of the founders that uh, psychology had become reduced into part processes. You know, whether that was more external and behavioral or just focused more on intellective changes, you know, conditioning changes, or uh, physiology, uh, medical. Uh, the sense was that, may, that we weren't really getting to the, the, the agentic capacity to discover one's, one's core values and uh, uh, aspirations in living. You know, what life was about in a fuller sense, what really mattered to, to each individual. Um, and so this whole field blossomed from that, and it was connected with revolutionary movements in the culture in, in America in the 60s that were on parallel paths, trying to break out of the straitjackets of the Victorian era of the, the 50s and it was a very dynamic time. Now, out of that also came uh, excesses, which I, I think are, are very problematic uh, and un unfortunate, uh, but uh, understandable. I think, for example, I, I uh, have, have the greatest admiration for R.D. Lang and his work. I think it's, uh, it's uh, just... Uh, pivotal in, in, in our field, especially in terms of understanding, opening to uh, alternative ways of seeing reality and, and so-called psychosis. 
and really blowing the lid off of our so-called normal functioning in society, really moving to a much more socio-political, cosmological context for understanding human behavior and experience. But he, he made, I, I feel he made some mistakes, you could say, uh, personal mistakes that uh, had, had something to do with his own struggles uh, that uh, compromised the really important messages that he and others were attempting to convey to psychiatry and psychology. And some of that, I think, was encouraged by uh, excesses in the 60s. That was partly about experimentalism and partly about perspective again. Not not knowing what would happen if people took an excess of drugs or, uh, or uh, you know, experimented in very freewheeling ways uh, mm-hmm. with, with intimacy, etc. Right. Rollo May uh, wrote a very perceptive book about this, Love and Will, you know, where he was calling people to acknowledge the beauty and the wonder and the, the absolute uh, richness of the opening up that was going on in the 60s and early 70s, but also to, to note some caution about it, uh, to, to have some a more of a, like a meta perspective on, uh, and, and maybe more of a, a, a kind of uh, carefulness about uh, the fragility and vulnerability of our humanity as well. Yeah, it seems sometimes humanistic psychology is characterized in terms of just focusing on the positive elements of human behavior, what might be possible, how we might change. And then existential is uh, focused on sort of these deeper, darker uh, confrontations with, with the harder parts of and the harder to answer parts of, of being human. And it seems your work, especially on awe, integrates sort of both sides of this. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to, to integrate those and, and what awe, uh, how you developed this idea of awe? Yeah, well, I, I feel integration has been a, a thread through much of my life. And uh, I've come around to it through uh, hard experiences of my own and, and experiences of excess. I did have some of those experiences in my graduate years at, uh, uh, for example, the State University of West Georgia, which uh, was a basically uh, one of the first uh, concentrations of humanistic psychology on the East Coast and uh, was created at Maslow's Blessing. Uh, I have wonderful professors there, wonderful community. But I also struggled some with the uh, the radical openness of of it. I actually had some of the the most important psychotherapy existential analysis there in my life, and and that was just a pivotal follow up to that earlier analysis I had as a kid. But some of my earlier issues were sort of getting activated at that time, and. Uh, it was extremely important and has really kind of made me a crusader for a more holistic depth approach to therapy. Um, yeah, so I, I've been aware of deep uh, fragility and uh, uh, humility, humiliation, if you will, 
a sense of smallness in my life, as well as uh, a, a great capacity to venture out and to take risks uh, and uh, to see that uh, those those can often be extremely rewarding in one's life. Uh, but they need to be tempered with, uh, with a humility about, uh, again, how vulnerable and powerful, you could say, subconscious forces of the psyche can be. The notion of being a fragile creature before the vastness of existence. So at least for me, that, that dynamic or, or dialectic between uh, smallness and greatness has, has been extremely important and I, I find uh, embraces uh, a vital sense of life, a, a kind of a holistic sense of life to, to be able to be present, as present as possible to one's deepest dreads and sadnesses, uh, poignancies of life as well as one's you know, most dazzling desires and, and possibilities. Uh, what more can, can one get out of life? I mean, to me, this is the gift that we've been handed, and both are, are extremely important to each other, really. As, as May put it, they fructify each other. Without one, you don't have the other in, in its depth and intensity and it, its possibility for discovery. So again, I, f I feel I've been very fortunate to have been led and to have led myself along, along that road. So the sense of awe has been an organic notion that it came out of a lot of personal experiences and professional experiences and seeing people getting stuck either in their smallness or in over-identified with greatness or expansiveness. And what I've found is that almost invariably these extremes or these what I call polarizations, you know, the fixation on a single point of view to the utter exclusion of competing points of view, uh, pertain to uh, trauma that people have had. And they're doing almost everything they can to avoid any hint of the opposite in their lives. And so it, it makes perfect sense then to design a life around hyperarousal and let's say grandiosity or narcissism if one feels terribly small and, and imperceptible and not counting in life. And I definitely see a lot of that problem in our current culture and, and especially among certain uh, leaders. And I'm, I'm not just talking about one area. I'm talking about our profession, you know, mm -hmm. professionals, as well as, you know, business, uh, social, political, religious realms. But also people could go the other way where they're just terrified of, of taking any chance outside the box because of their particular traumatic matrix. And so they hunker down and, and keep themselves small and, uh, avoid any hint of uh, a more expansive way of living. It strikes me that, um, that this conception of awe is a little bit different than other 
ways of thinking about helping people in yeah. psychotherapy, right? It's, yes. it's not about mitigating or like taking up some middle position between feeling small and feeling large, but rather it's about sort of having that be, being able to experience both of those things simultaneously, being able to bring your experience of smallness into your experience of your potential, being able to bring your experience of your potential into your experience of feeling small. Well, to, to the degree one can, and this is my integrative perspective, is that I, I realize we, we all live on a spectrum, really, uh, a spectrum of capacities, and not everybody is either ready for or, or desirous of uh, that sort of fuller range of uh, contact with uh, the, these diverse experiences within and without oneself. And I think we need to respect that. Uh, I do think that a lot, there's a lot of people, a lot more people than we realize that do yearn for a much fuller and richer range of living uh, and who are trapped in much more restrictive forms of living in part because of the systems mm -hmm. that, that uh, emphasize a more quick fix, instant result sort of model of living. The, the sense of awe uh, brings... I believe a, a kind of a spiritual or psycho-spiritual dimension that we don't often think about with uh, psychotherapy that uh, I believe organically can evolve from a therapy that is available to a deeper level of uh, exploration of one's concerns, uh, which can then open to one's possibilities, fuller possibilities for living. And, and in, some, in a lot of ways, I see that kind of therapy, I'd call it an existential integrative therapy, as a kind of staging ground for cultivating a sense of awe, because you're moving continually between just crushing humiliation and smallness and fragility to, you know, gradual, uh, incremental, Venturing out, whether that's with your therapist, uh, uh, expressing a feeling toward that therapist, anger or sadness, allowing uh, a more feelingful life, allowing it with others in your sphere. Um, maybe it's in regard to a project. And then, of course, there are the, the almost invariable times where people uh, become uh, unable to to maintain that that venturing out, <laughs> and so they, they, then they get you know squeezed back in, and uh, uh, or it could go the other way where people are attempting to restrain themselves more in discipline and focus, but uh, just can't hold it, and so they they end up going back into the original traumatic-based position. Uh, so in many ways, the, the, this kind of therapy I'm talking about, at its best, is a, is a movement between a, a sense of abject terror and paralysis to incremental intrigue and even fascination with the possibilities of a larger life the more of who one can be. And it's that back and forth movement between terror and wonder that can eventually, hopefully, lead somebody to find that ground, you know, that foothold within the groundlessness that we all are living in, really. Uh, I mean, that's 
the larger context of, of life and existence, as far as we know it. I was going to say, you've contrasted this conception of awe with uh, what you called the robotic revolution. And you spoke a little bit yes. about the way systems kind of encourage us to polarize or even how collective traumas or individual traumas can encourage us to polarize. So, yeah, what is the robotic revolution and how is that limiting our ability to live with this sense of awe? A lot of my recent concerns have been with the increasing technicization or technocracy of uh, society and of individual living, our increasing reliance on the machine model for living, if you will, the digital mediator of our experience uh, between self and world. And what what is the cost of that? Uh, it's clear that we're all of us are becoming more and more reliant on our smartphones, our you know, our internet, our computers. Uh, and, and now with the pandemic, uh, there's even more of a press to, to rely on our, you know, Zoom meetings, et cetera, our virtual realities. And by no means am I a Luddite. I, I don't paint this as all bleak. Uh, but I do have uh, a, a lot of questions and unsettlements about it that I, I feel are shared by by many people who really think about these things, of what all this portends for our society. In um, Spirituality of Awe, uh, Challenges uh, to, the, to the Robotic Revolution, I define uh, a concept I call roboticism, which is the, uh, the gradual attempt to emulate the machine model of living, and actually, ultimately, the gradual prospect that we don't just emulate that model, but that we become that model. So an actual melding with machine, machine world. And this, this is not an idle fantasy. This, comes out of, this doesn't come out of nowhere, but... Uh, people like uh, Ray Kurzweil and, and, and others who have affiliated with something called the transhumanist movement, which is the, uh, as they see it, the expansion of consciousness based on robotics and genetic engineering and nanotechnology, etc., uh, appear to believe that uh, it's not only uh, useful to us to use our technology maximally, but uh, that it's actually a very positive thing. And they talk about moving toward the singularity, which is the point at which you can no longer distinguish the human being from the mechanical. And of course, we've seen this type of scenario in uh, a lot of science fiction. I mean, I know that's extreme, and it's it's, mm -hmm. it's not the reality of where we are now. But there's certainly hints of that. I, I guess my sense is we we really got, need to be careful. We need to be vigilant about how much uh, computerization takes over our world. It's interesting in, in sci-fi. Sometimes um, we worry that we're that the singularity will be accomplished by. Uh, creating robots who have human consciousness. But it sounds like you're saying there's also a worry of the opposite, is that we achieve the 
mind meld with technology, not by technology becoming like us, but by us becoming like technology. Well, yeah. I mean, there's some logic to that. Uh, I mean, at some point, our, our machines are going to be so, quote, great and efficient that uh, it's very possible that it, it will no longer be functional to have the kinds of vulnerabilities and uh, peccadillos <laughs> that we have uh, as humans, you know, flesh and blood problems that we have. And, and certainly the idea of lasting, uh, you know, indefinitely is appealing to a lot of people. I mean, this is part of, part of that whole lineage of the search for the Holy Grail and immortality and, and some of the themes that people like Ernest Becker warned about, striving for an immortality project writ large. <laughs> and it's extremely seductive. So I do want to bring that up. It, it's extremely seductive. And, and, and I, I understand as a human being, we, we all get sucked into the idea of, of living a more efficient life, uh, more convenient life much longer life. And I'm a believer in that too. If we could supplement our flesh and blood way of living uh, with the mechanical that helps us live longer and, and richer, especially a you know, more enriching kind of life, great. But here we get back to the problem of what's driving this. Mm -hmm. And if it's fear, like as I was saying before, is the driver of so much uh, extremism and polarization, then we're in real trouble. And, and I don't think we've examined the collective fears that this movement has come out of enough. And I think people like Michel Foucault have done profound analyses of this yeah. uh, with his focus on this major turn toward industrialization soon after the, uh, the Dark Ages, so-called. And, and the attempt on the part of at least Western civilization to do everything it could to move away from any hint of our primal relationship with nature. And so it was very good and, and, and important in so many ways. You know, it got us great intellectual developments, got us, you know, under our heads much more, uh, brought rationality to the fore, which is obviously helpful in so many ways in terms of lifting our standard of living and the way we treat each other and avoiding illnesses. But the big question he raises is, did we throw the baby out with the bathwater? In this headlong striving toward a, a kind of a hyper-sanitized, controlled world what's the price yep i just was going to say as foucault did we can turn and look at this critique and how it applies to the, our field um of psychology and, and psychiatry right and so Absolutely. as you were talking about the seductiveness of sort of creating um models of human behavior that are more predictable than humans are um certainly we see that playing out i think in in psychotherapy research and we're yes. um looking to create sort of manualized short-term models um, delivered as a drug would be almost uh, and just looking at whether or not we're decreasing, you know, symptoms um, as they've been defined uh, in, a, in sort of a very medical way. So I'm wondering, you know, how, yeah, how does this whole person approach, how does this integrative approach to seeing 
the fullness of you know human vulnerability. How do we integrate that with studying psychotherapy and making sure people have the best services available to them when they go into mental health treatment? A huge question, and it relates back to to this socioeconomic context that we're many of us are living under. So if the socioeconomics of our world presses toward instant results, uh, appearance and packaging, getting things done in a, a sort of a mechanistically efficient way, then that's going to impact every other part of our lives, major part of our lives. And, and certainly science and psychology are not exempt. And I and this is where I have a lot of empathy for the position that psychology is in. To a large extent, it's driven by these larger socioeconomic contexts. Uh, the pressure uh, by funding agencies, corporations, etc., to uh, maintain uh, this model. What I think we can bring with a more holistic uh, integrative perspective is to recognize that this is part of our world and uh, and that it's helpful at some levels. I believe people sometimes benefit greatly from medication, let's say to get through the night, to get through the week, uh, to get through very rough patches in their lives, um, uh, or they benefit from uh, other kinds of physiological support from uh, cognitive behavioral support. There are people in life circumstances where they don't have the luxury to take more time to, to look more deeply at their whole bodily experience of life and, and the, the question of how are they presently living and how are they willing to live? I mean, these are two very fundamental existential questions at the deepest levels of, of treatment. So, yes, helping somebody to think more rationally uh, or to behave uh, in a way that is more functional in the world or to be supported by external inputs to help them stabilize in life can be extremely important. However, there are many people who are being severely cheated by this model and shortchanged, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy right through our entire system from training therapists to uh, the way it's practiced, in my view. Um, and I think we can, as a field, as a profession of psychology, uh, we can bring a larger perspective to this problem. Especially if we develop the, the backbone, uh, the courage to stand for the full offerings or the fuller offerings of our field. We have many brilliant people in our field from uh, these more, you might say, practical in a sense, practical, program programmatic types of treatment that uh, tend to be uh, focused in on uh, through the uh, medical-like uh, research methodologies that 
you know, tend to uphold these forms of approaches, right through to therapists who are much more psycho-spiritually concerned or concerned uh, more with the diversity and multicultural perspectives of uh, the clients, patients that they see, uh, who don't necessarily fit into these standardized, uh, some would say colonized models, um, and who are concerned with depth, a depth perspective in psychology, psychodynamicists, existential humanists, etc. And, and they have a lot to bring to the table too. And I would argue that, that they really can bring the pendulum back toward a more fruitful dialectic in our field and, and, and bring our field more to a holistic perspective. But what we need to do more of, I believe, is to use the bully pulpit to stand for our fuller science and our fuller ranges of outcome research. We're missing a lot of that outcome research. A lot of that outcome research is done by extremely reputable researchers, you know, such as John Norcross and Bruce Wampold, Lambert, et cetera, uh, who find over and over again that these more holistic relational contexts are pivotal to effective psychotherapy and to what clients say about what's pivotal for them. And even that great consumer report study that Seligman did, you know, I don't know, some 10 years ago, uh, which took surveyed clients, uh, did, did a lot of qualitative research about what what consumers most appreciated about psychotherapy. And it was these more intensive, longer-term relational kinds of approaches that, that were more enduring and more, more central to them feeling of, of vitality about their life. So I believe we can contribute to the whole culture by having a greater influence uh, from our full range of offerings within our field. Yeah, so sometimes the critique is made of psychotherapy, right? That you can do the, the best work with somebody in an hour a week or a couple hours a week. And if they keep going back into a society that's trending towards greater inequality, discrimination, marginalization, that it might help them through that, but we're not addressing the sort of the larger problems that are driving people uh, to have some of the experiences that are incredibly difficult that we see in, in therapy. And you've made this decision to run for president of APA mm -hmm. to address some of these larger issues. So I wonder if you could speak yes. about your decision to run and how much of that is caught up in trying to get psychology to address some of these larger systemic cultural issues that are affecting our patients. Well, it's all about that. It's all about bringing a voice to psychology, uh, to the national scene that uh, represents, uh, again, a more integrative, holistic perspective. And so one of the proposals is around uh, a call for a psychologist general. Uh, can't go into detail right now about that, but uh, you know I've written about that in Scientific American. I'm continuing to develop the concept as I'm in discussions with people at council and the board level about it. 
but basically someone to be a point person who works in coordination with APA advocacy and our APA resources to be a, a bigger uh, a megaphone uh, for advocating for uh, so many of the areas where we're underserved in the population. We have tremendous mental health crises, as many know, you know, from depression to anxiety to addictions, horrifying uh, forms of uh, hate crimes, uh, racism, suicidality, and, and, and in, in many cases, uh, a despair about, about living uh, in, in our current world. So there's a great need to bring these resources to bear. And uh, I do think that uh, having a representative from inside government to focus really strictly on psychosocial aspects of mental health care is, is vital. And, and really, it seems our time has come. I mean, we, we've had the, the medical domination of, of that arena within government. Uh, why shouldn't it be paired, you know, with mind as well? A more concerted focus on mind, mind and body. You know, they go together and they can integrate and be coordinated. But I think we need authorities that are just as powerful in the psychosocial area uh, as well as in the medical. And then I believe very strongly in healing dialogues. And I think we can bring these to bear uh, within our own field. And I've, I've called for, if I am elected, the assemblage of uh, leaders or presidents of all our divisions to come together to talk about what they can offer, what each specialty can offer to the crises of our times. And, and we collate that data, we bring it together, and, and we communicate that uh, to the larger public. Uh, and perhaps out of that comes more research and projects uh, that are engaged, you know, by uh, funding agencies, etc. I also uh, believe in healing dialogues in terms of the various factions that we have within APA. So bring leaders from the scientific wing and the practice wing, uh, qualitative research, quantitative research, uh, depth psychology, cognitive behavioral psychology, ethnic and cultural perspectives on psychology and, and st more standardized uh, perspectives on psychology. Bring all these various factions together to, to learn about and understand each other as much as possible. And out of that, what we've seen from these healing dialogues that I've been involved with uh, nationally uh, is that when, when the focus is on attempting to understand and learn about the other, it tends to enhance the likelihood of achieving common ground and of building bridges. And it's so different than the kind of verbal flamethrowing that so easily devolves from uh, our usual way of, of conversing in this culture and especially these days, through media and through uh, political circles, you know, the echo chambers that people get caught in. Uh, 
it's like, what's the alternative? The alternative is we continue the verbal flamethrowing, which is like pouring more gasoline on an already raging flame. A second alternative is to devolve into violence and war. And a third alternative is to uh, devolve into helplessness and despair and total stuckness. So I ask people who, I guess, who, you know, are question, very questioning of, of a dialogue approach, what are the viable alternatives? I mean, certainly, I believe uh, that one viable alternative is to make your voice heard to engage one's righteous indignation, one's righteous anger about the status quo. I think that's extremely powerful, and we've seen through many movements in history, civil rights being a more recent one, that that can be a very powerful impetus for then promoting the, let's say, national conversation and having practical impact on the powers that be. But I do believe ultimately that that is a springboard or, or an impetus and that ultimately we need to come, to come to the table and talk to each other. So it's not just about intellectual exchange of views, at least the way I view these dialogues. I call them the experiential democracy dialogue, which comes out of my work, both developing that one-on-one -on -one dialogue format and Braver Angels, a national organization that brings groups of liberals and conservatives together for living room style dialogues. Uh, but for me, it's more than just about, you know, uh, learning about and understanding each other on more of a kind of intellectual level. It's about supporting the people to be more present to themselves and the other at even nonverbal levels. Uh, that that's the next step, really for much of our democratic process and, and a vital step really to addressing uh, the, the, the kind of social breaking that we're experiencing right now, racially, politically. It's got to be more than just heady. We need supportive, that is safe, as safe as possible, structured dialogues that adhere to ground rules. Otherwise, it so quickly devolves into, into these flare-ups that I was talking about before. I'm hearing the potential for the dialogues in two ways. One, you're talking about the work with Braver Angels, sort of mm -hmm. um, psychologists um, working to create dialogue yes. groups in the country so that people can yes. come together and start to find common ground to face some of these challenges you know, racial justice, climate change, yes. um, political crises that are facing us, and then also a role for healing dialogues within psychology, as you're talking about it. That's right. So that psychologists can come together and speak with an integrated voice, a mosaic of voices, as you've said, about some of the policy level initiatives that could help heal some of these crises, the mental health yes. crises, the suicide crises, the, the addiction uh, crises. So yes. I'm wondering... You know, how would an integrated uh, voice of psychology, maybe in a position of psychologist general, what kinds of policies do you think could be ad advocated for that would help to address some of the rising rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, addiction, etc.? Well, first of all, through these bridge building dialogues, we become a much more potent force. 
and we we can concentrate uh, our priorities, I believe, in a much more powerful way at the national level. Uh, so, uh, what what might we bring? Well, I, one thing that immediately comes to mind is advocacy for uh, making longer-term, in-depth, relational, emotionally corrective, uh, therapeutic context available to a much larger uh, range of people. Where I know we have thousands of, of dedicated, uh, extremely astute professionals working at that level. But I think many of them are handcuffed because of the socioeconomic uh, restraints that they're under and the kind of, kind of again, efficiency orientation that they're under, which is shortchanging to a lot of people. So we could certainly advocate at the level of priorities and federal funding. And we could point out that, uh, you know, we do have studies. APA came out with a review of these studies that show a lot of medical offsets to uh, people getting quality mental health care, even at the levels that they're being presented now. But just imagine how much could be offset, how many, how many expenditures could be offset, maybe uh, not only in medicine, but at, but at the level of attrition in work or lowering recidivism to prison, supporting people to find more uh, new leases on life or more motivations for living, which could certainly have serious impact on economic growth, even to uh, perhaps the level of the military, of maybe not needing so much emphasis on, on, on mili militaristic elements in our, in our society. The question again, back to priorities. You know, do we do we fund for what we what we know and what our science tells us about what's most flourishing for a society and an individual in the longer run, or do we just keep patching up these these holes that are cracking, are cracking in the in the walls of of our society, and and they're going to blow through. It's it's pretty clear. To bring it full circle here at the end, I'm. I'm just struck by how this kind of advocacy that you're speaking about might make, you know, how that might affect an individual child, uh, maybe experiencing mm. a great deal of anxiety for a variety of reasons, <sighs> yes. having lost somebody close to them or not having sufficient supports. And yes. um, how might, you know, this kind of advocacy at a federal level allow more children to have the sort of corrective experience with mental health care that you had as a child? Exactly. I want to see children have the kind of experience and support that I had as a kid. Because I know I would have gone off the rails if I didn't have that support. And I was headed that way at points, uh, especially in my early elementary school years. I feel extremely strongly about that. I want to see others have, have that Availability and, I, and and it can happen. We are a productive and uh, forward-thinking 
innovative enough society to do <laughs> so much for ourselves if we you know if, if we but uh, allow ourselves to think outside the box more you know, and face these these kinds of issues thank you so much for joining us here at Madden America it's really a pleasure to have you and we wish you the best of luck in your campaign for the presidency of the American Psychological Association uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't uh, get to touch on today yeah, that you thought would well, be important to mention? I appreciate you asking that because I was thinking as I was describing the experiential democracy dialogue and, and Braver Angels format, that didn't have time to go into detail, but uh, much of this is laid out in my recent book, The Depolarizing of America, a guidebook for social healing. Uh, so if people are interested in going into more detail, uh, it, it is available there. Uh, also, people might be interested in my, my website, which is kirkjschneider.com. So there's a lot more about all of these themes uh, that are, are accessible there. And I just want to say I, I found this to be a, a very uh, profound and, and gratifying engagement with you. Thank you. And, and, and inquiry. So thank you for your, your important work. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.